Hey, listen, it's awesome to be with you guys tonight. Thanks for opening up your pulpit and allowing me to come. And, and uh, to Tim, it's been a, a delight to have the time together to pray with one another and to share. And, and uh, so it's just good to be here tonight. Uh, I don't know if you've ever felt like, though, giving up. I have a bunch of times. And uh, it's the type of thing to where it's easy to start something. It's hard to, to finish it. Yeah, if you look even New Year's resolutions, I want, I want to ask for a show of hands of how many made New Year's resolutions and how many have already broken those New Year's resolutions. It's a whole lot easier to start, isn't it? I don't care if that's a diet. I don't care if that's a budget. I don't care if it's some physical endeavor. It's just a whole lot easier to start than it is to finish strong. And along the way, I can guarantee you, you want to give up, whether it's life or whether it's a relationship or whether it's even a walk with Christ at times or a church. And I, I, part of the reason why my heart is with you guys and comes out to Tim it's, is, you know, I was a part of a larger church and went to help a church plant. And uh, there were friends that came alongside and said, oh, that's awesome. We're going to go. and We're going to be a part of this. And this is great. And then they get to church and it's like, where's the youth program? Where's the kids program? Where's the music program? Where's... And I'm going like, dude, we don't have that yet. Be patient. And they left. And, you know, and not everybody has a pioneer spirit, right? And so that's a part of what we're about. But I want to talk to you from the Word of God tonight, so just some other things about a common experience that all of us have. There's a guy who in 1968 had the privilege of running in the Olympics. His name was John Stephen Akari, and he ran for his home country of Tanzania. And what made this so remarkable is that he starts out the race, and he comes in a full hour after the race had already been decided. He was the very, very last person to cross the finish line. And yet as he limped into the stadium in his event, which is a marathon, he's coming in. And all of a sudden, in one end of the stadium, people see him with great effort struggling around the track for those last laps. And he's obviously injured. He's obviously in pain. And yet he is still going. People start standing. And they start cheering. And there's like this wave that goes on, just people cheering him on around the track. And when someone asked him afterwards, why in the world would you do this? Why in the world, after the event was completely over, you're absolutely dead last, why in the world would you do this? And he said this, he said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race, but to finish it. That's the right perspective. And haven't we all had times? in which we want to just throw on a towel, wave the flag, we're done. I'm through here. And yet the scriptures don't say that we should or can do that, but we're all tempted to. There's a book in the Bible, and tonight I want to go to this portion of scripture, and then I want to look at several others. And if, if you're one of those people that really wants to dig deep and, and plumb all the particulars and the details of a specific passage, I'm sorry, you're not going to get that tonight. Okay, we're going to touch our toe in several different places, and I encourage you to go back and look at it. But if you're one of those anal retentive individuals that just to have every I dotted and T crossed, look, you just have to build a bridge and get over it tonight, okay? Because <laughs> that's not where we're going to go. But we are going to start in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was a book that was written to Christians, Jewish Christians, as you might think from the name Hebrews, and they were basically ready to throw in a towel. They're saying, look it, what is this? We believe in a Messiah, we believe in a Savior, and he said he's coming back. He hadn't come back yet. What's with that? 
And you know, they came out of a tradition where they had all sorts of different physical, visible symbols. They had a sacrificial system. They had priesthoods. They had angelic visitations. And all of that stuff, they're not having. It's like Jesus came and Jesus went and he hadn't come back. And what's with that? I think we're going to go back the way it was. And so the book of Hebrews, in essence, through all of it, is about the superiority of Jesus Christ to all of those religious constructs. And every single one of them pointed people to Jesus, and he was superior to all of that. So why would you want to go back? Then chapter 12. Uh, you may have heard at some time about chapter 11. There is one place in the Bible that lists all these great people of faith. Uh, I call it God's Hall of Faith as opposed to Hall of Fame. And it's a phenomenal passage that without faith it's impossible to please God. And he just lists all the men and women throughout history that are such great uh, individuals and examples of faith. Well, right after chapter 11, we read these words in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Listen to what it says. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're following, that's, that's what I'm reading out of. If you're following digitally, just click on ESV, and you know, that probably will weird you out the least. If it's something else, don't let it throw you, okay? And if you just want to listen, a lot of this is going to be storytelling tonight, but I think we're in good company because Jesus did that a lot, okay? So anyway, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, we could spend the entire evening talking about those two verses. That's the guts. That's the heart of what we do want to talk about tonight. But there's a central statement in this, and that is run the race with endurance. Stay in the game. Stay in the race. Run with endurance. And it says, okay, how are you going to do that? Well, he reminds them, look, you're not the first person to do this. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, it's almost, I'm not going to say that there's people in heaven as spectators, but he's saying, look at, you're not the first person to be here. Look at all the men and women and look how they ran and look how they finished and look what they did. Look, you're a part of a greater crowd. You're not alone. And so anyway, he's saying, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, run the race with endurance that God has set before you. Look, this is not something you decided. It's something that God set out, and he's in charge. He's in control. So stay in the game. How do I do that? It answers to the next question, looking to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Now, there's a lot of statements about the sin. I happen to think that the sin that it's talking about that trips them up and entangles them is a lack of faith, which is the root. It's like the mother of all sins, is a lack of faith in God and putting faith in ourselves. That's like flip sides of the same coin. So saying, look, lay that aside. Like you're stripping down for a race. You don't want to wear leg weights. You don't want to wear all that other stuff. You want to be really ready to go. And how are you going to stay focused? Stay focused on Jesus. Anybody that's done anything athletically knows you've got to stay focused on the ball. It could be the ball, right? Okay, you've got to stay focused right on it and not get distracted by all the other stuff. And so what he's saying is, look, keep your focus, keep your vision firmly fixed on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. And understand it's not some, you know, Pollyanna, 
stick your head in the sand, everything's going to do, que sera, sera, what will be, will be, or everything's going to turn out well, everything's beautiful, everything's good. It's not that. Look at what he says. He despised the shame. He endured the cross. It's not saying Jesus enjoyed the cross, but what was the focus? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the shame. He despised being crucified and all that went with it, but he endured it because it brought great joy to him. The joy, as we see from other places in Scripture, is doing the will of the Father. He stayed focused himself. He was the great example to us. So we ought to follow in his footsteps. We ought to have that example of running that race with endurance. Now, having said that, what is it that's going to cause our eyes to get off of Christ? It's easy, like I said, to start well. Where is it that we can get twisted up and sort of sideways in this whole thing? And I think one of the great examples that we can look at from a negative standpoint is Peter. The great apostle Peter, but there's three different times that we see in Scripture where he said he got his eyes off of Jesus and onto something else. And that's what I want to look at tonight in the Gospels and sort of tell you the story. I'm going to tell you where it is. If you want to write that down so you can go back and check it out and make sure I'm just not making this stuff up, that'd be a good idea. By the way, that's always a good idea. Anytime you hear a preacher on the radio or television or from a pulpit, don't just assume that because the preacher said it, it's right. That's almost like saying that I saw it on the Internet. It's got to be true. Okay? So anyway, first place we're going to look is in Luke chapter 5. And I want to tell you, Luke chapter 5, this is the first place where we see Peter get his eyes off of Jesus. And in this Luke chapter 5, he gets his eyes off Jesus and on himself, and specifically on his past failures. In Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to look at, at uh, Luke and at Matthew and at John tonight. We're going to leave Mark out. He's going to be a little lonely, but that's what we're going to do. Luke chapter 5, beginning of verse, uh, it's really where Jesus calls his disciples in his verse 5 through about verse 11. So let me tell you what it says there. Basically, Jesus is calling his disciples and he goes. And it says that he comes beside the sea and he's been preaching and he takes a boat and he pushes out a little bit from the shore because they didn't have sound systems back then. All right, so sound travels a lot better across water. So he's preaching to the people and he's using the boats of these fishermen. And Simon Peter happened to be one of the fishermen. As he's preaching, he finishes his teaching and then he tells these fishermen who threw for the night because they fish with nets and you fish at night when the fish can't see the nets. And he tells them, look, I want you to just push out a little bit from the shore and put down your nets. And they're going like, Obviously, you don't know how to fish, okay? You don't fish during the daytime. You don't put down the nets. Then we've been working all night long. It's just not the way you do it. But since you said it, we'll do it. Didn't make any sense to them, but since you said it, we'll do it. They push out. They drop the nets over the side. And guess what happens? The scriptures say they were filled up so much so that the boats begin to sink. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. When Peter sees this in verse 9, or verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at his knees to Jesus, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with them were astounded to the catch of the fish they had taken. And so were also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, for from now on you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. That's where it ends. But don't miss 
that Simon Peter initially, what was his initial response to Jesus? He sees this incredible miracle. Obviously, this man is from God. Obviously, he's connected in a way that I'm not. What's Peter's response? He falls at his feet and he says, depart from me, Lord. Get away from me. You don't know what kind of person I am. You don't know what my past has been like. Get away from me, for I am a sinful man. You, want, you don't want anything to do with me. I'm just going to tarnish you. I'm going to bring you down. Where were Peter's eyes at that point? Were they on the miracle that had just happened? Yes, and in a sense, there's a good thing to say when we see God, we repent. That's good. But it's not good when we say, depart from me. Get away from me. Have nothing to do with me. I'm not forgivable. You just don't get it. You know what? We take our eyes off of Jesus and what he wants to do in our lives, and we put them on ourselves and our past failures. That's exactly where Satan wants our eyes to be. He wants us to be off of the plan and the purpose that Christ has for us, which is to make us fishers of men. Now, thankfully, he got his eyes back in the right place, but initially... He was in danger of not going there. I don't know if you know who Chuck Colson is. Most of you probably do. He was uh, Richard Nixon's hatchet man, so to speak. He's a hardcore Marine guy, attorney. Uh, he was, uh, again, just his political assassin. He did all of his dirty work and was in the Watergate scandal, was implicated in that, ended up going to jail. He ended up going to prison. And so right before he went to prison, if you ever read the book Born Again, which is a great, it's been around a long time, but it's his story of how he came to faith in Jesus. And a lot of people said, yeah, right, that's one of those foxhole conversions. It'll never last. It won't work. He's scared. He's like so many other people. He's crying out to God and, yeah, yeah, right. Well, it did last, and he did his prison term. And as he came out, he began to work with prisoners, and he founded a group called Prison Fellowship. And he talks in his book, Loving God, about being on the platform on an Easter Sunday morning in 1978. He said it was a glorious morning and he had been there and he met with all of these different prisoners one-on-one, -on -one, especially those with her in solitary. He went and talked with them and there were eight believing prisoners that really aligned with him and the rest wanted nothing to do with him. But they banded together and they began to pray about having an evangelistic outreach at the Delaware State Prison. Governor DuPont had asked him to give a, a review of the prison system and that was a part of what had been done. And he said, as I sat there on the platform that morning, my mind began to race back of all the lofty positions and political power that I had held and all the things that I had been able to do for this country and all the cases won and lost. And yet my mind did not go to those. Instead, it went here. Let me read to you what he says in the book, Loving God. All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation being sent to prison was the beginning of God's greatest use for my life. Only when I lost everything that I thought made Chuck Colson such a great guy had I found the true self that God intended me to be and the true purpose of my life. It's not what we do that matters, but what a sovereign God chooses to do through us. God does not want our success. He wants us. He doesn't demand our achievements. He demands our obedience. Victory comes through defeat, healing through brokenness, and finding self 
through losing self. Here is a man who was broken and who allowed the Spirit of God and the person of Jesus to embrace him and to radically change his life. And until the day of his death, Chuck Colson pursued being a fisher of men as Peter did when his eyes were focused properly and not on his failures. Think, well, that's, that's great. That's a book. I'll never see a guy like a Chuck Colson. Let me tell you about another guy. His name's Joe. I first met Joe when he started coming to our church. And I didn't know it at the time, but Joe had a very serious addiction to a, very, a variety of chemical substances. He also had a very serious addiction to gambling. And he knew his life was out of control, and he was coming looking for help. And over a period of time, he came to understand that God loved him in spite of his sin, and he accepted God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and he began to do a makeover in his life, changing him from the inside out. Joe is one of those guys that could evilly have said, God couldn't need me, and he can't use me. I'm, I'm such a screw-up. There's no way that I could possibly be used of God. Look at how I've blown it in so many different ways. And yet as he yielded his life, to Christ, instead of focusing on his failures, on his past, as he did that, he began to get more and more involved, and he leads our Celebrate Recovery program. There are numerous people who've come to faith in Jesus through that program that are walking in sobriety and that are growing in their faith in Jesus Christ as a result of one man who kept his eyes focused on Jesus instead of the temptation to look at his failures, his inadequacies, his past. Peter, thankfully, put his eyes on Jesus. He repented of his sin, but he also accepted Jesus and moved on from there. Well, another place is when we get our eyes on the circumstances, and this is in Matthew chapter 14. And Matthew 14 is another time on the sea, and this is a time in which the disciples, it's right after the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus sends the disciples on across the sea of Galilee. And as they're going across the sea of Galilee, something incredible happens, which often happens in that part of the world. A tremendous storm blows up, so much so that these disciples were fearful of their, of their own lives. And many of them were fishermen. They were used to being on the sea. And yet the waves were white capping, and the boat was pitching, and to and fro, and everything else. And one of them looks out, and they see somebody tripping across the water, just, just like walking on the water. And they didn't have like a personal flotation device. They didn't have a personal watercraft. Uh, they weren't jet skiing. I mean, it was just like they're walking on the water. And one of them says, it's, it's Jesus. First of all, they said it's a ghost. They were scared to death that this is their time, that they're about to be checked out, that God's coming to take them. And you know, one of them says, no, it's Jesus. In Matthew 14, Peter, the one who, I love his impetuousness and how he oftentimes speaks out, even though he puts his foot in his mouth a lot. I love the fact that he, he speaks out. He says, Lord, if that's you, Command me to come to you. And Jesus says, come on. Knock yourself out. Come on. This is great. Now, you know, what? we oftentimes bag on Peter a lot, but I got to tell you, he's the only one that had the guts to get out of the boat. I don't know if you've ever read John Ortberg's book. It's a good book, but I love the title even more. If you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. That's exactly it. So Peter gets out of the boat. And he is stepping over the gunnel, and he is putting his foot down. And what does he find? Another miraculous thing is happening. He finds that as long as he stays focused on Jesus, he's doing the impossible. He's walking on water. You ever heard about a walk-on-water recommendation? 
Well, Jesus is not the only one to walk on water. Peter also had the privilege of walking on water. And he's walking across the water, focused on Jesus. But what happens next? Notice what it says in verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. How do you see the wind? I mean, you can't see the wind, right? You see the effects of the wind. So he's seeing the waves and he's seeing the white caps and he's seeing all this stuff. He's thinking, I can't do this. I can't be out of here. What, what, what is this? When he was looking at the wind, when he saw the wind, where were his eyes? They weren't on Jesus. What were they on? The circumstances that were so impossible and so dawning. And he became afraid. His faith was replaced with fear. Now, don't get me wrong. Fear is never the absence, or faith is never the absence of fear. Any more than courage is the absence of fear. It's when we allow our fears to paralyze us. It's when we allow our doubts to dominate. He was no longer focused on Jesus. He's seeing the wind. He begins to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. Jesus says to him, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? You were seeing incredible things happen. Why did you get your eyes off of me? Why did you start looking at the circumstances? Why did you doubt? Now, I'm thankful that Jesus didn't give up on Peter at this point. He stays the course. He stays with them. But he's also pointing out, look, you've got to learn. Keep your eyes on me. There's a young couple who is a part of our church. And uh, Emily, that Tim introduced to you a few minutes ago, and I had the privilege of meeting them probably about a year ago, a little bit longer. And they're from Kenya. And the circumstances of their life is they were tripping down, uh, traveling all the way down to, to Mesa, to East Mesa, uh, to a church predominantly of Kenyans down there. And their vehicle kept breaking down on them, and they couldn't afford to fix the vehicle. And so a friend of theirs told them, give them a whole lot of sympathy, said, well, why don't you just find a church closer to your home? That seems perfectly logical, doesn't it? So they come into our church as a result of that and came into our lives. We have gotten to know Nicholas and Mary um, pretty well. Matter of fact, they call Emily mom. They used to call me pastor, but they call Emily mom. And uh, they've really adopted us, and we have adopted them. And they're individuals who could have taken their eyes off of Jesus because of the circumstances. Um, a little over a year ago, we knew that they had an anniversary coming up, and they said, could you meet with us? We'd like to go out to dinner, but before we do that, could you meet with us and have a prayer, just a prayer blessing over our life and over our marriage? And I said, sure, we'd be honored to. So we met in the prayer garden that's right adjacent to our church, and we sat in there and had a marvelous time of praying. And I knew from having had dinner with them before that one of the greatest desires of their heart was to have a child. You know, in that culture, matter of fact, Nicholas has never known his dad. And, and he and Mary don't have any children. And in that mindset, the attitude is, well, something's wrong with the wife. So go find somebody else to have a child with. And Nicholas got pressure within his own family. And the attitude is, if you don't have a child, you're not a man. And so look at all the pressures societally and culturally that are coming to bear on them, but they long to have a child. So we prayed over them, and Emily and I both did, and 
It was just a few months later that we get a phone call from Nicholas, and I knew what the answer was. And we had prayed that God would open her womb and give her a child, just as he had so many other women who were barren throughout the scriptures. And, and they called, and sure enough, they were expecting. So there was great anticipation and great joy, and they loved the, con- the, the concept and the idea of having this baby, and they were wrestling with names, and she was a part of a Bible study that was leading, and the women came along her, and they had thrown a shower for her, and there were all these gifts at the house, and, and so they, were, they have a two-story apartment, and so she's downstairs and uncomfortable. She's about five months along, almost six months along, and didn't want to go upstairs, and she said, I'm just going to sleep down here, and, and they were debating about names. They had a list of names. And she was just reveling and marveling in all the things that people had done and how they had responded to her. And, and through the night, uh, she felt like the Lord told her, said, what about the name Angel? Because an angel is a messenger of me. Simultaneously, unknown to her upstairs, Nicholas wakes up in the morning and he comes back down and he lays down beside her and says, what do you think about the name Angel? Wow. That's sort of like those gospel bumps, you know? There seems like God's fingerprints are all over this thing, and it's beautiful, and it's marvelous. And, and so they're saying, yeah, Angel. Angel's a great name. And then I get a call just a few weeks later, and they're at the hospital. And they'd gone for a well care checkup. And yet the doctor told them, I can't find a heartbeat. The baby had died. Here is a couple who are sold out to God, who are longing to have a child, and yet this baby was taken from them. And yet when Emily and I walk in the hospital room, Mary is there with the covers pulled up and Nicholas beside her, and through her tears, Mary says to us, God is good all the time. Thankfully, They have kept their eyes focused on Jesus and not their circumstances. Do you know now that Nicholas also has enrolled in Phoenix Seminary? He's been working two jobs, but he wants to tell other people about Jesus. Do you know how easy it would have been to say, Jesus, you can take and shove it. If this is what it is to follow you, if you're going to bring my hopes up and then just bring them crashing down, you could have prevented this. Who would have blamed him? Thankfully, that's not where he went. By the power of the Spirit of God, he didn't get his eyes. She didn't get her eyes on the circumstances. But they stayed focused on Jesus. We go on and we see Jesus is crucified. He's he's not crucified. Well, yes, he's been crucified. The next one I'll look at is in John 21. Peter's denied Jesus. Denied him three times because of the fear fear of what could happen to him and he's been just even after the resurrection it's probably been very hard to get back on track and in John 21 there is a post-resurrection appearance where Jesus comes and again the disciples were fishing in John 21 it says this and I don't know if this simply means that they just needed a break and they were going to go fishing like I'll say I've been working too hard I want to go fishing or if they were saying we're going back to our former occupation I don't know which it is, but they just said, we're going fishing. Who's going with me? They're out fishing again. They don't catch anything. Doesn't that bring, start causing you to wonder about how profitable they were in their profession? 
They see a figure on the shore at a distance, and he says, you caught anything? And they're like, no. You know what? When I go fishing, I hadn't caught anything. That's the last question I want to hear. I mean, I want to feed somebody, you know, a knuckle sandwich or something. I just, don't give me this stuff. What are you talking about? But they didn't. They said, no, we haven't. We fished all night. And, and he says, well, throw your nets over on the other side of the boat. Again, I wonder if this starts bringing things back. They throw the, boat, the nets on the other side of the boat. They start feeling these tugs, and the nets start pulling. And, and as it comes out, there's 153 large fish. Well, at some point, someone said, it's the Lord. It was the resurrected Christ. Peter jumps in the water, swims to the shore. And when he gets there, as the others are bringing the fish to shore, he finds the Lord Jesus already had a meal, already breakfast fixing for him, where he's fixing some fish. Then we see one of the most tender scenes in all of Scripture, where Jesus says to Peter, he pulls him off to the side, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, then feed my sheep. A second time, he says to him, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he says, the second time, tend my lambs. Then there's a third time that Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? And there's a, a subtle play in the English, but it's not, which you can't see, but in the Greek language where he changes the words for love. He's asking Peter, do you love me? with an unreserved, unconditional love, an agape type of love the first two times. And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. But he does not use that word because he knows of his failures. Instead, he says, Lord, I phileo you like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You know I love you like a brother. That's not what Jesus asked him, but that's what Peter responded. And the third time, Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me like a brother? Peter was greatly disturbed, it says in John 21, that he would ask him that. And he says, I do love you. I love you. What do I have to do? And he says, feed my lambs. I always look at this, and many others have, as this is Christ's reinstatement of Peter. Probably a three-time question because there was a three-fold denial. And yet Jesus did not give up on him. He saw great good in him. He saw great potential in him. He saw that Peter would be one of the foundation stones of the entire church. And he reinstates him to ministry. Now here's the next point, though. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That would be the apostle John. The one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, is it you who are going to betray me? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Well, the significance of that is Peter had said, or Jesus had said, feed my sheep. But before he got to this point, he also told him, Peter, when you're older, they're going to bind your hands and they're going to take you to a place that you don't want to go. And the scripture says that he said this, signifying to him what type of death he would glorify God. He was telling Peter, Peter, you're going to have to lay down your life for me. Not just metaphorically, you're going to be a martyr. Follow me. Then Peter looks over and he sees John, one of the closest disciples to Jesus, and he asks a very natural thing. He says, Lord, what about this man? What about this man? You know, oftentimes aren't we tempted to get our eyes off of Jesus and on our own failures? Yeah. Onto the circumstances? Yes. It's also when we look at other people and what God's doing in their life that we can get our eyes off of Jesus. Jesus' response was to him, look, what does that matter to you? 
What does it matter to you if I want him to remain until I come back? You follow me. When we get our eyes off of Jesus and we start looking at other people, that's a trap. That's a losing proposition. We've got to stay focused on Jesus and understanding we really serve before an audience of one, as Oz Guinness puts it. An audience of one. And that's not people. That's Jesus. We've got to follow his call, not someone else's agenda. Tim said, I've been doing ministry a long time now. I mean, it's pushing 40 years in ministry, and there's been more than one or two times I just wanted to quit. If I can be candid to say the hell with it, I'm done. But God's kept me in the game. And it's by staying focused on him. There have been times when I've looked at other pastors, and I've said, man, look at their ministry. Look at how they're blowing the doors off. That's, why not here? Oh, look at this person. Look at that. Look at their family. Their kids are doing great. And Emily and I, one of our greatest heartaches is we have one of our adult sons, and you saw his picture up here. He's not walking with Christ. God didn't fulfill the desires of his heart and meet the hurts and the needs in his life the way that he thought that they should. And so his alternative is, look, if this is supposed to be a relationship, it really feels one-sided, so I'm out of here. He's not showing up. And to be candid with you, not long after that, because of the heartache that I had with that, I'm thinking, I'm going down the same path. God, I've tried to do everything right. I've tried to bring him up right. I've tried to train up a child the way he should go. And trust that when he's old, he's not going to depart from it. What's with this? I'm trying to help other people in my own household. And yet the Spirit of God said, Rick, if you get on that path, you're doing the same thing he's doing. And you need me more now than ever. It would be easy for you guys to look around and say, what about Mars Hill? We got shafted or some other thing like that. Or what about another plant of Mars Hill? Look at what's going on with them. Or what about this? Or what about that? Or what about this church? Or what about that other one? It would be easy to do that. It would be natural to do that. But it would be wrong to do that. Look, every person needs to stay focused. And every church needs to stay focused. What about them? Let them work out their issues with God. And let's work out ours. We need to follow him, even if that's the harder path. Let's stay focused on Jesus. Let's not give up. You know, there's a, a woman who, a year, number of years ago, her name is Corey Ten Boom, wrote a book called The Hiding Place. Uh, she sheltered Jewish families and children during World War II. Uh, she ended up going to a prisoner of war camp. Her, her uh, sister died in the prisoner of war camp. And this was a statement, a little poem that I heard her say. And she says, put your eyes on yourself, you'll be depressed. Put your eyes on the world, you'll be distressed. But focus your eyes on Jesus and you'll find rest. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying when Jesus said my yoke is easy and my burden is light, it means he's pulling the weight. You're not having to do the heavy lifting. He's pulling the weight as long as you and I step with him. I want to tell you guys, God is doing a great thing here. Stay focused on Jesus. God has given you a leader who loves Jesus and who loves you. 
Be thankful for that. Support him and encourage him. It was a great thing to say to our congregation when we're going through the book of Timothy. The irony of Timothy and Timothy. And we get to the very end and that very second, some of you saw a portion of the message that was there when we talked about, look, here's what's going on and we need to stand with this church. We need to stand with this young man, with this family. They need to know they're not alone. And our congregation applauded because it's right. Understand that God has given you an opportunity. He has given you leadership that didn't cut and run, that didn't bail, that believed God brought them here to plant a church and not just start a church, but to finish what God started. I applaud you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the part that each of you play. And trust me, you've got a good man. You've got a good family here to provide leadership. You've got other people. You've got resources. God just provided you with a sweet new place to be able to meet. The last time Tim and I met, he said, my biggest prayer request, we need a place to meet where we can meet on Sunday morning. Well, that's the last time I talked to him. I checked it. Wow, this is sweet. Next week, you guys are in a great place. Okay? Look what God's done. Now, let me say this. God does not love you more now than he did before. You got that? His love is not circumstantial. It's the same God, the same love, the same plan, the same purpose. Trust him. Stay focused on Jesus. He will bring it to pass. That's my encouragement to you tonight. Just know you're not alone. And it's not just that there's other churches in the area that are praying for you. There's other brothers and sisters that care for you primarily. You're not alone because you got Jesus. He is with you. He is in you. He is for you. And he will work in you and through you to do some amazing things. Let's trust him for that together. Okay? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the men and women who are here. Thank you for the work that you're doing in each of their lives. And thank you for the privilege of serving you together. Father, there's not many churches out there. There is but one true church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and many different applications and local expressions of that. And I thank you that we have the opportunity to serve you together, to uphold the name of Jesus so that as he is lifted up, many men, many women, many children, many students will come to faith in him in central Phoenix, and from way beyond. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray that this will become a reality. In his name we pray. Amen.